feels a while since I was here on a Sunday, but uh, it's really good to be back with you. And uh, I get the privilege this morning of doing the Bible reading. Um, I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity of reading through quite a big chunk of Joshua. Uh, don't worry if you haven't. Um, and, uh, but I'm going to read to you um, an extract from the uh, chapters that we've been given. And I'm going to begin at chapter 3 and verse 7. Um, if you want to follow it in any way, and I suspect it'll come up on the screen. Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant... When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. As soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the waters flowing down to the Sea of Araba, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. A little bit more information about this crossing. I'm going on to chapter 4 and just two verses, verse 12. We're also told the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. This is the word of the Lord. I've got something for you to listen to just for a, a minute or two this morning, if we can make it work. The anticipation is all.
Do any of you recognize who that is? Paul Robeson, well done. We've got a picture of him, we'll come up in a minute. Paul Robeson, the American singer, actor, social activist, actually, singing Deep River. My home is over Jordan. A famous African-American spiritual that expresses that longing to cross the Jordan, to cross from the brutal realities of this life of slavery to the freedom and surely the joy of the world to come, the other side of the Jordan. I wanted us to listen to that because all of that and more are caught up in the passage that we've just read together. At the beginning of our reading, that is where Joshua and the people of Israel are. You remember God had set them free from slavery in Egypt, and then they had been wandering around the wilderness, lost for 40 years, for a whole generation. Oh, they'd had the opportunity to enter the promised land before, back when Moses was still alive, back in Numbers 13. But back then, their courage failed, and they didn't take their God-given opportunity. Rather than taking the risk of staking their lives on trusting God, they chose to stay in the wilderness. I guess it felt safer. At least it was familiar. But here, amazingly and graciously, God gives them another chance. They have a new leader, Joshua, and it feels like a new chapter, a new start. This time, the spies bring back an encouraging report, and this time, the people are up for it. But there was still the river, and it's important we don't underestimate the challenge, the seemingly impossible challenge of crossing the River Jordan, especially at harvest time, when the Jordan's in full flood, looking a bit like that. And we're only too aware at the moment, aren't we, of the power of a torrential river? We have pictures on our screens just a a week ago and over recent weeks from Libya, from Derna. You remember those pictures of devastation, the devastation caused when the water flooded down the dry riverbed that runs through the heart of Derna, destroying buildings, carrying off people. And the estimate is that there are 20,000 people who've died. Rivers are always dangerous. And maybe that's why in the Bible, rivers and the sea are, are not only dangerous in themselves, but they're symbolic too. They're symbolic of the forces of chaos that God subdued and brought under control in creation. Those dark forces that still lurk under the surface, waiting to erupt and overwhelm God's good world. Oh yes, crossing the Jordan River was a big thing. And the people knew that the only way they were going to get across was if God was with them every step, literally every step of the way. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. 
This is how you will know that the living God is among you. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. As soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off. And of course, that's exactly what happens. As the priest's feet touch the water's edge, God dries up the river before them. And that doesn't only honor their trust and their obedience, but it also reminds them just who God is. Twice we heard, did you notice, that the living God is the Lord of all the earth, the Lord of creation, the Lord of the world and all its people. God is, the, God is reminding them who he is. And in that, there's also a reminder of who they are, what they're about. Yes, they are God's chosen people. And what a privilege. Look how God was with them. They had been chosen. God was there with them. But chosen, as God said to Abraham right back at the start, chosen not just, not primarily for their own sake, God had chosen and called them and made them his people. Why? So that all the peoples, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. They had been chosen for a purpose, a challenging purpose, an impossibly challenging purpose on their own. No, we shouldn't underestimate the challenge of the river uh, but if you've read these chapters, you'll realize that nor should we underestimate the challenge of what waited for them on the other side. The people crossed over opposite Jericho, you remember? The priests who carried the Ark of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan on dry ground until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Not one wet foot and if the passages that we had been given for today stop there, this would be a classic story of God's power to deliver his people. And we'd be encouraged, we'd shout hallelujah, and we'd go home happy. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? It would be an awful lot easier if it did. Did you hear who were the first to cross the river? In that second bit of our reading, in 4 and verse 12, there at the end of the reading, we're told the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. Now, these were the tribes that had been given land on the west side of the Jordan, the side of the Jordan the people were crossing from. So they were already settled but they were part of Israel and they had promised to fight with the rest of Israel until all Israel was established in the land. The men of Reuben, Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh crossed over ready for battle in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord 
to the plains of Jericho for war. And you know what happens next? You know this, those of you who are in Sunday school, don't you? No sooner they're over the river than they're confronted with the fortified, apparently impregnable city of Jericho. And following God's orders, they've learned something, you see. Every day, what do they do? They march around the walls. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times. They blow the ram's hall, horn, the whole army gives a loud shout, and what happens? Come on, folks, what happens? The walls come tumbling down and down and down and down, yeah. Without a single Israelite casualty, the walls come tumbling down. So far, so good. And then what happens? The trumpets sounded, the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in and took the city. Then we read, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, as well as the cattle, the sheep and the donkeys. Remember that come Christmas. Oh, they spared Rahab and her family for helping the spies, but they destroyed with the sword every other living thing. Men, women, young, old, children and babes in arms. I wonder, how does that sit with you? I'm not meaning to rub it in, but it happens again just over the page in chapter 8 in the city of Ai. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and the wilderness where they chased them, maybe fair dues, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. Preachers are sometimes encouraged to look for the trouble in the text. I don't need to be told to look for the trouble in the text because I have a friend, a friend who is very quick to point it out to me. She's been a friend for more than 50 years and she used to be a believer. But life's been tough, and faith, she would say, has died on her. And she's got lots of questions. And I can hear her as I read this story. What kind of a god, she'd say, what sort of a monster could sanction the mass slaughter of innocent women and children? And it's not just unbelievers, no lesser person than the great Protestant reformer John Calvin. You've heard of John Calvin? He calls it this, a detestable cruelty, surpassing anything of which we read as having been perpetrated by savage tribes scarcely raised above the level of the brutes. And we just want to ignore it, don't we? But if we take the Bible seriously, as we do, we can't ignore it. And indeed, if we do ignore it, we miss something that is just so important. 
Back in uh, 2004, Mel Gibson produced a film, The Passion of the Christ, some of you will remember, a film that was heavily criticised by lots of Christians for being too graphic, and it certainly was graphic. I don't know if any of you saw it. It was brutally graphic. I watched it, not because I wanted to watch it. I, I'm not into horror. I, I most definitely did not want to watch it. But we had people in our church who were survivors of the Rwandan genocide a decade earlier. People who had images of even worse things, far worse things still, seared into their minds and their hearts. And they needed to know that God knew what they'd been through. They needed to know that God was there in the sickening cruelty of their experience. And in a world where Auschwitz is followed by the killing fields of Cambodia, by Darfur and by Srebrenica, the world needs to hear the good news that God is there in the bloody messes of life and of history. And of course, we don't have to go back into Cambodian history to find killing fields. I wonder how many service veterans in this country suffer because of things they've seen, things they've done on the battlefields of this world that we've asked them to do. And it doesn't stop there, because today we have so many much more sophisticated, more insidious ways of destroying people, don't we? Of closing down people's lives from the inside. It was the poet T.S. Eliot who said, human beings cannot bear too much reality. And actually, he's right. But the good news is that God can. And how do we know God can? How do we know that God is there, no matter how bloody the mess? It's tempting, isn't it, to skip over these violent episodes in the Old Testament. It's tempting to turn a deaf ear to those awkward questions that people both outside and inside the church ask about these violent episodes in the book of Joshua. Because when we read these passages, it's not always easy to see what a loving God might be doing. Part of the reason these passages are in the Bible is to remind us, even in the bleakest and most violent of times, that God is still somehow at work. Still at work seeking to bring good out of evil, seeking to press forward with his plan of bringing blessing to a troubled world. We may not fully understand how God can be at work in such bloodthirsty events, but we dare to believe that God is at work, even at those times when violence and suffering seem to have the upper hand. And how do we dare to believe that? How do we know that? We know because of another Joshua. Yes? It's even the same name, Yeshua, we know, because of Jesus. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we know that there is nowhere in this world where God is not. No horror he doesn't share. 
because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we know that there are no depths to which we can sink that God's mercy cannot reach. No power in this world that feels as if it's tearing us apart is stronger than the power of God's love to hold us together. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the good news is that there is nothing more powerful in the whole of the real world, the whole of creation, than the love of God which raised Jesus from death. Hallelujah. In Jesus, we see the depth and the power of God's redeeming love for real people in the real world. In the light, and it's in the light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we can face the realities of our world. And that doesn't allow us to explain away the horrors of this story the horrors of this world that God led his people out into. It doesn't enable us to explain it, but it does give us a way to live with it. It gives me a way to live with it. It gives us courage to face realities that I'd rather not ignore, including the way that we are all complicit in so much of it. We are born into a place where we have a history. We are part of that history. And so much of it we can't help but be complicit in. And you know, all that is needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Oh yes, I'd rather ignore my own complicity in so much of this. It doesn't explain this. It gives us a way to live with it, the courage to face up to reality, and it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Because we know that what we see around us isn't the end of the story. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we know that sin and suffering and evil and violence did not and do not have the last word. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we know the truth that Desmond Tutu affirmed in the midst of the suffering and injustice people experienced in apartheid South Africa, the truth that goodness is stronger than evil. Do we believe that? That love is stronger than hate. Do we begin to practice that? that light is stronger than darkness, that life is stronger than death, that victory is ours through him who has loved us. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, God breaks open a future full of hope for us and for this whole world. In the crossing of the dangerous river Jordan, God reveals his living presence with his people. In this amazing act of deliverance, God reminds them of his power over every force that would destroy them. No weapon formed against us will prosper. This amazing act of deliverance declares that the living God is the Lord of creation, the Lord of all the earth. God reminds them who he is. 
And that's what God's doing here among us this morning. Because this same living God is with us this morning, reminding us whatever we're facing, whatever river God is calling us across, that nothing is greater than the power of his love. We know that because it has been tested to the uttermost on the cross. Nothing is greater than the power of his love. That love that will hold us, that will fight for us, that will forgive us, that will see us and his world through. God is reminding us who he is, but he's also reminding us who we are. We are God's people gathered into the company of God's chosen people. Chosen, why? So that all peoples on earth will be blessed through us. The church, with all its imperfections, is the vehicle that God uses to move out into the world. You know... My dear friends at Hayward Heath Baptist Church, there are times when we're tempted to think that when we find our new minister, our new Joshua, all our problems will be over, aren't they? But it wasn't quite like that for the people of Israel. Crossing over the river was only the beginning of the challenges. And as we set out at the beginning of a new term, a new year, set out again looking for our next minister. The deepest truth is that we're not looking for someone who will keep us comfortable, but for someone who will help us have the courage to follow Jesus out into this world that he so loves, this world that so needs to know the hope he offers, the power of the forgiveness he gives, the redeeming love that he brings. We stand on the threshold of a season of opportunity. Are we up for it? Lord, you know that we long to be the people you call us to be, the people that the world needs us to be in these days. But Lord, you know too that we can only be those people if you take us and make us. And so, Lord, we ask you to do that, to fill us with your love, to send us out in the power of your spirit to the resounding glory of your name. Amen.